All right, thank you, worship team and choir. Justin, man, I appreciate you very much. Hey, if you would, as we are in our series, Finding uh, Your Purpose, if you would find your place in Ephesians chapter two, as we wrap up, thank you, Scott, appreciate that very much this morning. And as you find your place there, uh, let me say to those who are visiting with us today or maybe who are watching online for the first time that we're so grateful to have you as our guest and that we would love to connect with you. You can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus or you can text the word connect to the number that you see on the screen and one of our connect team members will follow up with you this week. Um, let me also invite you to discover Bayshore, which takes place today uh, at around 12.15 hour after our 11 o'clock worship gathering in the fellowship hall. Uh, we do this about once a month. We share the vision that we have as a church, uh, just kind of introduce you to some things we're doing and give you the opportunity to ask questions that you might have. This is the first step in the membership process, but also it's available to anyone who's just interested in knowing more about our church. Finally, let me invite you back this evening for our family dedications as we uh, celebrate nine children who are being dedicated uh, to the Lord, and we pray over them, and if you haven't been a part of this before, it's just a sweet time of celebrating and praying with these families, and there will be a reception to follow uh, for everyone immediately after that, so would love to have you there tonight. All right, well, I'm gonna read Ephesians chapter two, verse one through 10, then I'll pray, and then we'll start walking through this text together this morning. Ephesians chapter two, verse one says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. God, the song we just sang and the words we just read make it very clear that there is no one like you. And God, I pray that today that will be evident to all who hear my voice. God, I pray that we see that any version of purpose that we can give ourselves or that someone else promises to us is in no way as rich and great and deep and significant as the purpose that is found in the creator, the author, the sustainer, and the savior. And I pray that hearts would be drawn to you, that hearts would be deeper uh, in their a trust of you as a result of our time in the word this morning. So I pray these things in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, something you often hear Christians talk about is the concept of being saved. They would use it saying maybe when they got saved or that you need to be saved. The first time I remember hearing that word was when I was eight 
and I went to vacation Bible school. I can't remember going to church before that. And I remember going to that vacation Bible school. And all I really remember is that the church building smelled funny, that most of the people there were my grandmother's age, and that they talked about being saved. I remember after I became a Christian and um, I was uh, in college and I was working for this mortgage company in Jacksonville, my boss came to me one day. He was from California. He had very little exposure to uh, Christianity and he had taken his children uh, to a vacation Bible school uh, at the request of one of his neighbors. And when he picked up one of his children uh, who was uh, young at that time, we'll just say his name was Austin, he said to me, I remember him coming and saying to me, hey, I took Austin and these ladies walked out to me and said, Austin got saved tonight. And he was very confused by what that meant because Austin didn't really understand what that meant either. And, uh, you know, he had no exposure to that. Perhaps you remember the 2004 movie titled Saved, which starred Manny Moore and really made fun of evangelical Christianity. I, I think it's clear that a lot of people don't understand what we mean when we say the word saved. And I actually believe that many who say they are saved don't understand what that means, or at least the depth of what that means, therefore, possibly not really understanding what it means to be saved. And so this sermon, we'll look at this text and we will see what are we saved from and what are we saved Two. And so we'll walk verse by verse and almost word by word through our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, which says, and. Now, when you see that word and, it means, although this is a new chapter, it was and is connected to the thought or thoughts preceding it. In chapter 1, Paul's established God's work of saving us for himself to a glorious inheritance. He says, and you, the use of you is plural. I told you word by word, by the way. Uh, as are uses of this word you in the Bible often. Now, this is important because many of the things we apply in the Bible are to be applied corporately. We might be included in its application, but it isn't exclusive to us. And the application for us should have a corporate mindset. So we understand this is a part of the family of God, the community of believers, the kingdom of God, not just me in which this promise is realized. But it does include us, and Paul wants the reader to think of themselves, not just others, here. Last week, I talked about how people think the problems in our lives are from outside. We showed a diagram, and we'll show that again this morning, that, that shows that sin comes from within the heart. Sin comes from within the heart, not from outside. And God's revelation comes to us from outside, and we need to receive God's words in our heart and be transformed. But most people think that it is the environment in which we are in that causes us to sin. And so we think they are the problem. You see this amongst conservatives and liberals, or at least those who classify themselves in that way. Conservatives think liberals are the problem. They think that liberals are destroying family values and undercutting the backbone of society and trying to remove gluten from everything that we eat. <laughs> liberals think conservatives are the problems. They're prideful and bigoted and they don't recycle. We see this amongst fundamentalist churches and progressive churches. Fundamentalists think that progressives are the problem. Progressives are moving away from teaching the Bible. They ignore valuable traditions and they want to get rid of the green carpet. 
And progressives think fundamental, that stung some of you, and progressives think that fundamentalists are the problems. Fundamentalists are separating themselves, they aren't raising up young leaders, and they said there wasn't a puppy heaven. I'm, I'm kind of being funny here, but you see that typically we think they are the problem. And while they might factor into the experiences and the issues that we face in life, we have to understand that we are the problem. It is us, and Paul says you and he's talking about believers. And he says, and you were, and this is all heavy here, but I want you to see that the tension is already cut. It's past tense. Believers, you were dead. Dead means not alive. You're welcome for that. Paul is writing about our spiritual condition before Christ. The use of the word dead shows us that sin is not so much an action as it is a condition. Our bad actions are symptoms of our condition. You don't have the flu because you cough and sneeze and run a fever. You cough and sneeze and run a fever because you have the flu. In the same way, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Paul says that that leaves us dead. This is significant when we think of what needs to happen in our lives. If we have rotting food in our fridge, we don't add a bunch of spices to it and then eat it. I don't care how good Chick-fil-A sauce is, we don't dip the rotting chicken into some Chick-fil-A sauce and it's all done okay. Paul says to believers, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The Greek nouns used here really don't have much difference in meaning. However, in the Old Testament, there is the concept of transgressions and sins. One being actively transgressing the law, the other being transgressing the law by not prioritizing God's will. I think the point that Paul is trying to make is that your condition is death. And you're not just sinning, you are in sin. You didn't step in a puddle and splash yourself with sin, you are swimming in it. And you are going to drown if you don't get rescued. So you could say, you're dead. Some of you are thinking, I really needed some encouragement today. And this has started awesome. Um, well, just wait, it gets worse. Verse two. <laughs> In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul refers to believers and how they used to walk. To walk was the way of life in Jewish thought. It was the direction of your life. It was where you were going. It was who you were. He said in what you once walked, following. Something is leading the way. That's setting the direction and the pace of your life. Bob Dylan said in his song, Gotta Serve Somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. We're all following something. We all worship something. There's a thought today that the question is, will I be a believer or not? That the question is, will I worship or not? But the question is not, will we worship? It is, who or what will we worship? We all believe. We all worship. We're all following something. The question is not, will we worship? It is, who or what will we worship? And Paul doesn't break down the specifics, but he does explain what people are following before Christ. 
He says the course of this world. Paul uses the word cosmos, a word associated with the material things of this world. And this really is a temporal view to say I'm living for this world. I don't really know what people say today, but about a decade ago, people said YOLO. That meant you only live once. It meant live your best life. Maybe that's what people are saying now. But it meant, hey, we really have to take advantage of what's right in front of us because we don't know that there is anything else. And before that came along, it was different phrases like carpe diem, meaning you know, seize the day, saying, hey, I've really gotta take advantage of what's right before me and live my life because there might not be anything else. John Stott said that that expresses a whole social value system which is alien to God. Again, to believers, this is the way you used to live, following the course of this world. And not only that, but you were also following the prince of the power of the air. Paul personifies this way of life. He's referring to Satan. We have a lot of different thoughts about Satan. Some are pretty accurate, some are pretty not. But we know that he's in charge of this stuff under God, but nevertheless, he's in charge of what, a lot of what we see. And we see him in the Garden of Genesis, chapter three, getting Adam and Eve to question God's way and to live for what God excuse me, what brings pleasure and exaltation to them according to the course of this world. We work, see him working to create division in Israel in First Chronicles. And we are warned by Peter that he is seeking someone to devour. And Paul says, before you were following Christ, you were following him. And lastly, he makes our following spiritual. And he says, we were following the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. God uses the word pneuma 385 times in the New Testament. He even uses it to explain his spirit. We are spiritual beings. And there is a spirit that is at work in and through us. In Christ, it is the Holy Spirit. Before Christ, it is a spirit that pursues this world and submits to the power of this world. And we can see it at work in the sons of disobedience. That means people obstinate to the divine will. And Paul's intentional in using the word sons. It's a word that was important in ancient Eastern culture in which this is written. It carries with it identity and inheritance. Now it's easy to think about how we see this played out in others. But remember, Paul is saying this to believers. He's saying this was us, verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all includes all people. This is how we all lived, in the passions of our flesh. We pursued our worldly desires. We followed our heart and our mind apart from Christ. This is why we did the things that we did. He says, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. John Owen said, the seed of every sin is in every heart. And if we're given the opportunity, those seeds will grow. Tim Keller says that some sin may not seem like much if only given 10 or 20 years or 50 years. But if those seeds of sin are allowed the opportunity to grow for all of eternity, we will fully understand why it deserves the wrath of God. And Paul says, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here Paul explains our future in our fleshly state. The wrath of God is the reaction to, of God to evil. It is the reaction of absolute holiness to that which is opposed to holiness. And those who are living this way are dead in that they are headed towards death. So hear this. 
without God's intervention, you and I are dead in sin. Our greatest concern is not our dreams or our environment or our culture or our poor self-image. We are dead. We are by nature a child of wrath, a son and a daughter of disobedience, a follower under the influence of Satan. Now I realize that today we don't wanna talk about this. Even professing Christians don't wanna talk about this. They, they would avoid this. They would gravitate towards churches that make a commitment not to talk about these kind of things. And so you might be wondering, why are you talking about this? I don't like hearing this. Well, understand that we believe the Bible is breathed out by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, written by men, preserved for us. It's the truth. And you cannot escape any corner of the Bible without this being emphasized or being illustrated in people's lives. And so why it is here and why Paul is emphasizing it is that we need to hear it. And we need to hear it because, and I like the way Alistair Begg says this, the immensity of the grace of God in salvation is made all the more significant when we recognize our condition before we were saved. The immensity of the grace of God in salvation is made all the more significant when we recognize our condition before we were saved. Charles Spurgeon said, the reason we think too lightly of the Savior is that we too think too lightly of sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment about his, next, about, about his neck, will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which he has been forgiven of. I wouldn't say it this way, but I think the reason that a lot of people aren't living their life all in for Christ is they don't realize what we've been saved out of. And you might say, well, what about the goodness I see in people? And I heard a pastor say one time that to appeal to the goodness of humanity is like to talk of a terrorist who set out to carry out an act of terrorism later that day who's willing to share his sandwich with a fellow terrorist at lunch. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I realize that more and more tend to not recognize this truth about us the condition of our sin, that it leaves us dead in our trespasses. And I'm telling you that ten, we tend to think that's just in more uh, liberal places where there is very, ab very big absence of God, but I'm telling you it is growing in Niceville where we believe in a religion that says God and family and country without the gospel, where we acknowledge God we have family values and we serve our country and so we therefore think we are good and we deserve everything that is good. And we see this even beginning to increase in the messages that are preached in churches in this area. And you may gravitate towards that and you may therefore not be a part of a church like this one because of that, but I just want to say this. I love you, I respect you no matter what and no matter where you end up, but let's be clear. What I am saying is what God says. And anyone who is preaching and teaching these things 
is being faithful to what God's word says. And if this isn't a part of who you are, I would just say this, if you weren't spiritually dead in the past, you are spiritually dead in the present. If you weren't spiritually dead in the past, you are spiritually dead in the present. Believers need to see this. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air was ruling in our lives. The spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. We were living in the passions of the flesh. We were carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Believers know this. But believers know this and it creates a deep, great, serious joy because believers know something else. John Stott says, these are the greatest two syllables ever spoken in the English language. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Notice Paul's appeal to the capacity or capability and the propensity of God. Both of those things are important. God's capability, his richness, God's riches in comparison to Jeff Bezos' riches are like the grains of sand of the Sahara Desert. And the number of categories in which God is rich are like the grains of sand in comparison to the amount of riches of one person in one category. God's propensity, this text reminds us of his richness in mercy. Mercy really means pity, and we don't like to say that because pity implies that we were helpless, and we were helpless. And God showed us his great love. He was pleased with us, agapeo, which means love directed toward us, towards us. When we sing of God's love, we ought to understand the capability of God and the propensity of God used by him to love us. The gospel is really shocking because God shows his mercy to us in such a great way. On Wednesday night, I was serving in uh, our children's ministry with the first graders, and Jeremy Hefner was trying to teach them and trying to get them not to chase squirrels at the same time. And he asked, he asked them the question, how do we know that God loves us? And Malachi Timbrook, one of our first graders, says, we know it because Jesus died on the cross on purpose. And I thought, this is so profound. Because he did this on purpose. He was deliberate. He set out to do this for us because he has pity for us in the condition that we put ourselves in. Verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
We were dead because we were following the way of this world and he made us alive. He did this on purpose. He took the initiative. When we were trying to make a name for ourselves, he spoke through someone to show us how prideful and idiotic living for our glory was. When we were living for the things of this world, we saw how fleeting those things were and through something, God turned our affection towards him. When we felt like giving up because we had failed and we felt all alone, God spoke and we realized it's like he's been there all this time. When we were young and we were trying to figure out our way and how to live our life, God gave us parents and a church who showed us that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And there are millions and billions of stories of people like this who God pursued, who God showed mercy, and who God loved. And he didn't just save us out of death. He gave us life, verse 5 says, made us alive together with Christ. We've talked a lot about what we've been saved from. And as I've said, you don't get salvation without that. But we've been saved to something. He's made us alive together as the people of God with Christ. This is a picture of death to life. Jesus would say in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, to become a Christian is not just to become a better you, but a new you. It's to be given new life. Jesus isn't our second chance. He is our only chance. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Repentance is not just a turning from our sins. It's a turning to our Savior. And he says, by grace you have been saved. Almost like a parenthesis here in the text. Here's good news. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you belong to Jesus. There is no longer a penalty of sin for you. God does not punish you when you sin. There might be earthly consequences for your sin, but God isn't punishing you because Jesus has been punished in your place. By grace, you have been saved and in that new life, verse six says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Once again, God has made us alive together with Christ and that means we are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. The Bible speaks to the eternal exaltation of Christ as king of all. And Paul says here among other places that he's taking us with him. And notice, this is all in the past tense. Tenses in the Bible are important. It's in the past tense because Paul is referring to something that Jesus has already done for us. He's not talking about some gradual religious process of coming alive where you slowly become a good God-fearing person and you get to the level where you can be raised up and seated with him. He's talking about something that Jesus did for you all at once in the past. On the cross, Jesus became our sin. He died a sinner's death. He was treated by God like a follower of Satan, a son of disobedience, a child of wrath for us. He took on our sin in our place and he rose from the grave and he ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father and he is ruling and reigning and by grace we are saved to this. And I want you to notice there's a change in the tense of the, in verse seven. So that... In the coming ages, he might show 
the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now here, Paul speaks to eternity future and what God is going to show us for all of eternity, for all ages to come. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards in, excuse me, in kindness towards in Christ Jesus. Maybe you are beginning to see this now. That's really what the Christian life is. It's seeing how gracious God is towards us. And it's just the beginning. It says in the coming ages. Again, the, sand, the grace of God is like the sand in the Sahara Desert. We'll never be able to fully examine and see all of it. That's what we'll be doing for all of eternity. God's grace is so amazing that we will have new things for which to praise him for all of eternity. God's grace is so amazing that we will have new things for which to praise him for all of eternity. If you're not beginning to see this and you're longing, you're desiring, you're here and your goal is to keep getting more money or the next relationship or a life that your children can boast in or to be remembered all that you, all so that you can be gratified, then maybe you aren't saved. Because it sounds to me like you're following the course of this world. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It sounds like you are living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And if so, you are by nature a child of wrath no matter how much you claim God and family and country. You see, the gospel, and I'll use the three circles method, is that God wants us to walk and know him and experience his design, his purpose for our life. But the reality is, as this text very clearly tells us, that you and I, every one of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that leads to brokenness. That's why we see brokenness in the world, but that's why we see brokenness in our life. And the gospel, but God, Jesus, is the answer to that. And, and the call to us is to repent and believe in the gospel. To turn not just from our sin, but to turn to the gospel. To turn to Christ. To turn to his mercy. And to believe in him. To stop believing in whatever we've come up with ourselves or what the world has told us. But to believe and trust in Christ Jesus. So that we might experience God's design. And then the rest of Christianity... And the rest of eternity is the recovery and pursuit of that design because he continues to work in our life. And I realize that in a context like ours, that some of you may not see your brokenness because your life is kind of nice. We live in Niceville. And if you're of means, you're probably able to medicate so that you don't have to face your brokenness. And I think you need to get lost. I don't mean leave. But you were like, I'm one step ahead of you, brother. <laughs> Here's what I mean. You need to realize you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We're talking about holiness. And you need to trust in Christ. Christian Paul is showing us that that's us. That was us. 
and God intervened. And so our boasting, look at verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Paul says again, by grace you have been saved. This time he adds a modifier to it, through faith. The Bible shows us that the means of salvation is the uniting of the believer's will to God's will. And it's very clear, this is not our own doing. This is the gift of God. It's a free gift of God. It's not a result of works. It's not, I'm a good person, or I've given and served and been a member of this church, or it's not, I'm not like them. It's so that no one may boast. God's aim is for us to see the absolute depth of which he deserves the glory of our salvation. God's aim is for us to see the absolute depth for which he deserves the glory of our salvation. And the reason he may have worked the way he did in your life in a way that you don't understand why he would do it is because that was the only way that you would come to a place where you realize it is not about me, it is about him. Every Christian's testimony is a story of death to life. Because when you understand that you were dead in the trespasses and sins, you realize that your condition was far worse than you ever cared to admit. And you see that your salvation is far greater than you could have ever imagined. And God continues his work in us, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. That word literally in the Greek is the word poema, which is similar to our word poem. The concept here is that God has started writing a poem in your life, composing your life into a beautiful song that glorifies him. The only other use of this word is in Romans 1.20, which is used to describe the universe revealing the glory of God. The concept of God being the creator and the author is something God sets out to do and drive home in our hearts. And here Paul says, what God has started writing, he will finish writing. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by his work. And we are not saved by our good works. We are saved to good works. And believers ought to see that we were created for this and we ought to glorify him for this. A picture of this is Psalm 37, four, which says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that doesn't mean if you love Jesus, tell him what you want and he'll give it to you. Like he's some concierge waiting for our request. What trip do you wanna take next? Okay, I'll arrange that. What overindulgent, unhealthy meal do you wanna have and it still be blessed? I'll work that miracle. Some people think of God like he's this genie giving you wishes. He just can't make someone fall in love with you. That's from Aladdin, not the Bible. That's not what this means. God gives you the desires he wants and it changes the direction and purpose of your life on earth. You see, our identity, the Bible tells us, will shape our activity. Our identity will shape our activity. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3 and 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it with all your heart for the glory of God. Jack Packer says in Knowing God that the Christian has great energy for God, great thoughts of God, great boldness for God, and great contentment in God. And perhaps this morning, the reason that there is this disconnect between the faith that you claim to have and the life that you live is because there is not a true understanding of what salvation means. 
And perhaps your eyes would be open this morning for the first time. Or perhaps for whatever reason in God's grace you have been saved and it just hasn't captivated you the way it should be and now God is beginning to grab your heart. This should lead to great change. Fridays are my day off and um, Christy uh, sometimes will go and do something on Friday because that's her one free day and I have our four-year-old and a couple Fridays ago um, I was told our four-year-old, I said, Stephen, we need to um, clean up the house a little bit. And he said, okay. And he wa- runs over to Alexa and he says, um, hey, Alexa, pretend you're Alexa Paul. He says, hey, Alexa, play the cleanup song, right? And so we start, the cleanup song comes on. Clean up everybody everywhere. Clean up everybody, do your chair. And I'm singing along with them. And I'm like, okay, now start picking up your toys. And he said, oh no, I just like singing that song. I'll just wait a minute for that to settle in. (laughs) You guys are gonna lead us in a beautiful song here in just a minute. And we should sing as believers about the worthiness and the glory of God. But our identity shapes our activity. We don't just sing, we do what God's called us to do because of the great love with which he has loved us. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. When we understand who we were and what Christ has done and is doing, it changes everything about who we are. It's where our purpose is found. And in being evangelistic and sharing the gospel with other people, one of the great objections I hear often is that, well, Christianity is just a crutch. And I used to get really offended by that. You saying that I, I need a crutch, you know, like it was a personal attack. And now I've come to realize, you know, they are wrong. Christianity isn't a crutch. Spiritually, I was paralyzed, and I had no hope, and God has breathed life into this dead man. That's the gospel, and we owe everything to him. He's worthy of it all. Let's pray together. God, I pray that people are waking up to you, your pursuit of them. But God, help us to live in awe of that. In Jesus' name, amen.